You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at me. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's denying Snap out of it. If they call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. And welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Happy almost Halloween, everybody, though it should be a crime that a Halloween can occur on a Monday. But, you know, beggars can't be choosers. No movie reviews this week because I had to throw a party for 60 people at work on Thursday, which takes up way more time than I ever thought... And we have a hefty episode today anyway, because tis the season, and I was feeling very, very ambitious when I programmed this particular episode. So, here we go. This week, the real stories of the paranormal investigators whose work inspired the Conjuring franchise, Ed and Lorraine Warren. A lot of films have been inspired by Ed and Lorraine's quote-unquote cases, including in part 1979's The Amityville Horror and 2009's A Haunting in Connecticut. But for this episode, we're just going to cover the entities and cases portrayed in the first three Conjuring films. In fact, most of what happens in the other films is 100% storytelling anyway. Sorry, Annabelle fans. None of what's depicted in those films is actual lore about the doll. By the way, they just announced that a fourth Conjuring film is in development, so that'll be properly ruined for you by the time that comes out. Unfortunately, the real Ed and Lorraine aren't as well-meaning as their on-screen counterparts. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Where the hell is she doing? I got you. No. What the hell is she doing? What the hell is she doing? She possessed the mother to kill the child. She visits Carolyn every night. That's what the bruise marks are. She's feeding off of her. Uh, Nancy? They were the most famous ghost hunters in the United States from the 1970s to the 1990s, investigating over 10,000 alleged paranormal events. Ed and Lorraine became the last-ditch effort for desperate families to combat all manner of supernatural beings wreaking havoc on their lives. But when their cases are looked upon critically, some serious questions arise. Ed and Lorraine Warren met around 1943 when Lorraine was 16 and Ed was 18. Lorraine and some friends had gone to the movies where Ed had worked as an usher. Soon after that, he was fighting in World War II, but the couple married in 1945 while he was home on leave. 
Lorraine claimed to have paranormal abilities from childhood, while Ed believed he'd grown up in a haunted house and taught himself demonology as a result. After the war, Ed took art classes at Yale and began selling his paintings as kind of like a traveling salesman. He would sell them like on the side of the road. When the couple would hear of a house that might be haunted while they were kind of touring the country doing the painting thing, Ed would set up outside of the house, paint it, and then give the painting to the homeowner as kind of like a calling card, as he would often end up getting a tour of the house. As their interest in the paranormal grew, the Warrens founded the Psychic Research Society in 1952, which today is the self-proclaimed oldest paranormal society in the United States. In 1970, the Warrens were called to investigate a haunted Raggedy Ann doll in Hartford, Connecticut. Gifted to a nurse by her mother for her birthday, the young woman and her roommate claimed that the doll behaved oddly and moved on its own, and that a psychic had told the nursing student that the doll was possessed by the spirit of a girl named Annabelle. The woman and her roommate tried to accept and nurture the spirit-possessed doll into their home, but the doll reportedly exhibited more and more malicious and frightening behavior even allegedly attacking one of the duo's friends. It was at this point that the Warrens say they were first contacted by a local priest to investigate what was going on. The priest whom had called the Warrens performed an exorcism of the apartment, and the Warrens would ultimately take the doll with them, deeming it to be demonically possessed. There never was a child named Annabelle, just a demon whom had tricked them. When driving the doll back to their place, the Warrens reportedly experienced car trouble until Ed sprinkled holy water in the shape of the cross on the doll. A version of this is depicted in Annabelle Comes Home, which released in 2019. For the next several days, the doll reportedly did a ton of creepy shit, including levitating in a chair, teleporting into other rooms, and manifesting a black cat near it. Lorraine even claimed that the doll growled at her at one point. After several other creepy events, including a priest who made fun of the doll nearly dying in a car accident after leaving the Warrens' house, the couple locked the doll up behind glass with a warning sign. That sign said, positively, do not open. Until the Warrens Occult Museum closed in 2019 upon Lorraine's death and there were some zoning issues, like can't have a museum and a house, it's a whole thing, Annabelle remained in her confines. She is currently on display at a Connecticut casino for a paranormal convention. As in, this very weekend, that is where she is. After that, I couldn't get a solid answer on where she goes. Hopefully, you know, back in her little box somewhere. She's being presented by the Warrens' son-in-law, Tony Para, who currently runs the Paranormal Society. The same year as the Annabelle incident, Roger Perrin, a traveling salesman, as well as his wife and five daughters, were looking for a new start. Their family dog had gotten hit by a car, and if that wasn't enough, their neighborhood was becoming increasingly unsafe. One day, they'd even come home to find their vacation house ransacked and their three cats murdered. The oldest daughter, 12-year-old Andrea, attacked the boy she believed was responsible and briefly found herself in legal trouble. To put a hat on a hat on a hat, at the end of that very same summer, their neighbor had a heart attack and died while driving his car, crashing on the parent's front yard. The man's wife accused Carolyn, the matriarch of the parent family, of causing the man's death because the woman believed Carolyn practiced witchcraft. So yeah, 
The Perrin family was looking for an out, and Carolyn believed she'd found it in the rural town of Harrisville, Rhode Island. Carol placed the down payment on this new house without telling Roger, who was a little bit pissed at first, but was ultimately swayed to chase after this new start. While the film would show the parents moving into the house on a balmy, like, fall or late winter day, in reality, an ice storm raged the day the Perrin family moved into their new home. Andrea was handed a box from the truck to bring to her mother in the kitchen, and when she entered the dining room, she saw a man in period clothing she didn't recognize staring at the man the parents had just bought the house from. When she took the box to her mother, she asked who this man was, but when Carolyn went to check, only the previous owner was in the room. The other four parent girls, Nancy 10, Christine 9, Cindy 7, and April 5, all bounded into the kitchen, exclaiming that they'd just seen the man in the dining room vanish before their very eyes. Before the owner left the parents that night, he would tell Roger that the family should always sleep with the lights on. Soon after they'd moved in, Cindy crawled into bed with Andrea, claiming that she was hearing voices from the wall of her bedroom. She claimed that the voices were stating that, quote, there are seven dead soldiers in the wall. Later still, when the girls were playing hide-and-seek, Cindy was looking for the perfect hiding spot when she saw the cellar door open. The curious seven-year-old, armed with a flashlight, descended into the dark to investigate. There, amongst the cobwebs and other forgotten junk of former occupants, she found a latchless trunk and climbed in. Despite it being a chilly winter day, Cindy discovered that the interior of the box was actually quite hot, but when she tried to get out of the trunk, she found she was trapped. She would later describe it as if somebody was pushing down the lid. She panicked, as anyone would, and began screaming and kicking to be let out until she almost ran out of air in the box. Cindy was rescued by her sisters just before she fainted from oxygen deprivation. Later, Carolyn would be washing dishes in the kitchen when the door to the dirt-floored cellar once again creaked open. Moments before that had happened, the girl had felt a blast of cold air at her ankles. She turned her head over her shoulder to see the cellar door open, and when she turned back, she saw a human face staring at her in the reflection of the glass, as if the person it belonged to was standing right behind her. She spun back around, but found nothing but dead air. Andrea would have a run-in with the cellar as well. One day, while home alone doing schoolwork, she heard a baby crying downstairs. Confused for a number of reasons, Andrea went to investigate as the crying continued. Downstairs, she witnessed the cellar door swing open. Andrea claimed that it became so cold in the house, she could see her own breath. Just as suddenly as the door had opened, it slammed shut and Andrea screamed. As if on cue, Roger returned home to find his daughter just completely freaked out. He told her something along the lines of old houses do weird things, bumps and creaks are normal, but investigated the cellar nonetheless. Down there, he claimed to feel a hand gently touch his back, but of course he was the only living entity in the cellar at this time. A little bit freaked out, Roger went upstairs, fetched a hammer and nails, and promptly nailed the cellar door shut. I'm guessing this was a case of out of sight, out of mind. Despite this, Andrea began having terrible dreams. One such dream involved her being paralyzed in the corner of her parents' room, watching an old woman with sticks for hands leering over her mother. 
Next to her in the bed was her father, mutilated beyond recognition. When the old woman turned to look at Andrea, she bolted awake in a cold sweat. When she went downstairs the next morning to join her family for breakfast, she was horrified to discover her mother drawing the exact same figure she'd just seen in her dreams. When Roger joined them, he had lacerations on his back that he could not explain. Carolyn was awoken several nights later by the smell of smoke in her room. When she rose, she saw the figures of two men in the doorway of her bedroom. Fear-stricken, she watched as an old woman entered the room with a large torch, which she began tapping on the floor rhythmically while chanting, as if summoning something. Why was this not in the movie? That would have been balls-out terrifying. In the dream, Carolyn felt something stab her in the leg, which woke her up in the real world. When she woke up, she realized that the pain hadn't subsided. Turned out, she had a small puncture wound in her leg that was seeping blood. From that day on, Carolyn was reportedly a changed woman. She was described as as having aged decades in a manner of weeks, as though her life force was slowly being sucked out of her body. She began to believe that whatever was attacking her and her family was tied to the house and began diving into its history. She didn't like what she found. Turned out, A shitload of murders, suicides, drownings, and other awful freak accidents had apparently occurred in their home or around on the property or not far away from the property over the centuries. Carolyn traced all of this bad luck back to a woman named Bathsheba Sherman, whom was allegedly as beautiful as she was vicious. Bathsheba was responsible for watching several children, and one time an infant died while under her care. The coroner discovered that a needle had been jammed into the baby's skull. She was never formally charged, but was a communal pariah for the remainder of her life. She did not hang herself from a tree as the film depicts. Hearing about the needle and comparing her wound to the baby's murder method, alleged murder method, Carolyn became convinced her family was being haunted by Bathsheba, who must have taken the needle with her to the afterlife. Turns out you can take it with you. Carolyn's mental state continued to decline. She began wearing period clothing and speaking in an old-timey manner. Andrea was forced to pick up the slack around the house and parent her younger siblings as her father was away and there was something clearly wrong with her mother. This went on for several years until 1973 when a man and woman knocked on the door offering their help. Yep. It was Ed and Lorraine Warren. They were not invited by the parents as shown in the film. They merely showed up after hearing the rumors about the house. The Warrens toured the house and Lorraine claimed to sense a malignant spirit by the name of Bathsheba. When Carolyn confirmed that she recognized the name, Ed took the children into another room to interview them separately. What happened next was reportedly an 18-month-long investigation on and off, during which time Ed and Lorraine told the family they had a demon living in their home. It took some convincing, but Roger eventually agreed to the seance the Warrens kept saying was necessary. Ed and Lorraine never stayed in the house, as depicted in the film. Not long after Roger agreed to the exorcism, the Warrens came by with a cameraman, a priest, and a medium. I feel like I've heard that joke somewhere. To perform the ritual. The children were told to stay upstairs, but the now 15-year-old Andrea, as well as one or two of the other children, snuck downstairs to observe. The seance began with Lorraine calling out to the spirits, which shortly after caused the entire house to reportedly shake and the table to levitate. Carolyn slumped over in the chair as if she'd run out of batteries. 
Then her face began contorting, so much so she reportedly didn't even look like herself. Her body also began to contort in unnatural ways before she began levitating and speaking in tongues before she was thrown 20 feet backwards and cracked her head on the floorboards. Roger, believing that the Warrens had just killed his wife, kicked them out of the house and Andrea and Cindy ran to their mother's aid alongside their father, begging for her not to die. It seemingly worked and Carolyn would later claim that it took all of her strength and love of her children to regain consciousness. Magically, the footage from the seance was destroyed, making any and all claims of wrongdoings on the Warrens' part a battle of he said, she said. For months after this seance, nothing happened in the Perrin home. They believed that whatever the Warrens had conjured in their living room that night had scared the other ghosts, demons, whatever, away. But, slowly but surely, the oddness resumed. It began with Carolyn hearing voices from the dining room. When she went to investigate, she found a large family sitting around a completely different dining room table, while a woman cooked from a fireplace that in the modern day had been sealed. Two of the men appeared to see her, and Carolyn believed she'd found a portal between space and time. She assumed that she must look like a ghost to them, as they did to her. While the activity would decrease and be less abrasive as the years went by, according to the the family. The parents would sell the farmhouse in 1980, 10 years after they'd bought it, and moved to Georgia where things reportedly got better, but nonetheless, Roger and Carolyn would ultimately divorce. Andrea would later write three books about the family's paranormal experiences. But yeah, that's all the involvement the Warrens had in this case. A little bit of investigating that's not well documented because it all got quote unquote destroyed and one seance. They never lived with the family. There wasn't, you know, the exorcism in the cellar or any of the other situations shown in the film. Just one horrific seance and that was pretty much it. When The Conjuring released in 2013, a film that took over 20 years to get to the big screen, the house's current owner, Norma Sutcliffe, who had bought the house in 1987, soon found herself inundated with spooky tourists all hours of the night, many of whom had no sense of decency. Honestly, guys, I like checking out spooky places too, but there's some decorum. You don't get out of your car. You just take a picture, breathe it in, and leave. Their house is not a location for your photo shoot for the gram, the TikTok, the other bullshit social media stuff. It's someone's home. Norma claimed she lived, quote, in peace until 2012, the year before the film came out, after which she also began finding satanic items on her property. The house was not used in the film, a duplicate was made for the production, and the interiors were built on sound stages, but that didn't seem to matter to anybody who wanted to go and look at the real one. Anyway, all of the looky-loos bothering Norma set her out on a crusade. She was going to debunk the whole story with the help of journalist Kent Spotswood. This is a little bit of what they found. In truth, Bathsheba Thayer was born in Rhode Island in 1812. She married Judson Sherman in 1844. 
Judson worked as a farmer on their land while Bathsheba maintained the house. The couple was fairly well off. They had a son in March of 1849 when Bathsheba was 37, which of course is, you know, old for 1800s becoming a mother. It is possible that there were three other children, though they did not live past the age of seven. No formal documents confirm this. An infant did die in her care, but she was legally cleared and never accused of witchcraft. So yeah, turns out while Bathsheba Sherman was a real person, there was zero proof she killed an infant for a satanic ritual. This claimant originated in one of Andrea's books and the fact she claimed she'd uncovered during research for her books. She actually lied about confirming this with a local historian. Andrea tried to cover her tracks and claimed that this was merely the Warrens' theory, that the real ghost that had haunted them was a Mrs. Arnold that had hung herself on the property in the 1600s. That's right, she was the perpetrator of her family's turmoil. And yes, a Mrs. Arnold had hung herself in the area, but it was a mile away, and it was in 1886. So... Bathsheba Sherman likely wasn't a baby murderer. Just, you know, shit happens. And sometimes, you know, you use a baby's head as a pincushion. I don't know what people were doing in the 1800s. But, you know, it very likely wasn't malicious based on, you know, the facts that are known about her. But she was made the villain of a highly popular studio film, sullying her name forever. So spread the word, Bathsheba Sherman was innocent. Lorraine and the parent girls would serve as consultants on the film and even visited the set. And like they have there's this cute little picture that of like the parent daughters all posing with their film counterparts. Norma wasn't done having issues with what was going on. In 2015, Norma and her partner sued the film's director, James Wan, Warner Brothers, and the other producers because trespassers continued to bother them. Warner Brothers never commented on the matter publicly, and it was settled out of court. Norma would sell the house in 2018, and the new owners have opened up the house once more to paranormal investigators. Now, it was only briefly shown in the second Conjuring film, but the Warrens famously investigated the Amityville house, where Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed his family in 1974. Thirteen months later, the Lutz family moved in and claimed to experience horrific paranormal activity, culminating in them fleeing from the house in the night just 28 days after moving in. The Warrens investigated the property with a television crew in March of 1976, allegedly photographing a ghost boy in the process, and once again stated that it was super haunted, validating the family's claims, and of course this led to a shitload of attention and a book and scores of films. But the majority of the claims in the book have more or less been debunked, mostly by Christopher, Kathy's youngest son, whom blamed much of what happened, though not all of it, on his former stepfather's affinity for, quote, showmanship. So now on to the major events of the second Conjuring film's plot, and that would be the Enfield Poltergeist. Four years after the Warrens visited the Perrin family, the Hodgson's family in the UK began experiencing paranormal activity of their own. The family's matriarch Peggy was a divorcee forced to live off of welfare and childcare payments to support her and her four children, Margaret 13, Janet 11, John 10, and Billy 7. On August 30th, 1977, Janet and John called for their mother because one of their beds was shaking. Now in the film, 
Margaret and Janet shared a room, that was not the case. Peggy dismissed their claims as her two middle children screwing around. That opinion would change one night later. Janet and John claimed to hear a chair scraping across their floor. Peggy took the chair out of the room, but after doing so, heard the sound her children had complained about. When Peggy flipped the lights on in the room, the sounds would stop. The moment she turned them off, though, she and the children could hear what Peggy later described as slippers scuffling across floorboards. This was followed by four knocks on the bedroom walls. While trying to suss out a logical explanation, Peggy watched as a heavy chest of drawers moved across the bedroom and out into the hall. The dresser then shifted into a position to close the trio inside the bedroom. When Peggy tried to push the chest out of the way, she claimed to feel a force keeping her inside. When she finally managed to get out, she and her four children took asylum at their neighbors, the Nottinghams, after seeing their lights were still on. The Nottinghams and their 20-year-old son inspected the entire house but found nothing amiss. That was until they too heard four disembodied knocks from within the house. They would describe the sounds as hollow, and the part of the house the sound seemed to come from changed with each knock. Unsure what to do about disembodied knocking, they called the police. After taking the statements of those who'd seen the crazy shit going down in the house, the police investigated the chest of drawers that had started all of this. To their shock and horror, when they shut the lights off, they witnessed it move on its own, as had been reported. Shortly after, an armchair in the den appeared to be rocking on its own, and another chair moved three feet. All of this was seen by eight witnesses, including the two constables, whom recommended they consult a scientist and maybe sleep in the living room with the lights on that night. The very next day, Billy's toys began floating in the air, and when examined, the marbles were described as hot to the touch. On September 4th, after ceaseless paranormal activity, Peggy called the Daily Mirror, a tabloid-esque publication, and disclosed what was happening within the walls of 284 Green Street. In the film, Peggy is at first apprehensive to do press, and she is approached in the street by a reporter seemingly randomly. In reality, Peggy initiated the press coverage. Two reporters from the Mirror would stay with the family for about a day and a half, but during that time, Absolutely nothing happened. Annoyed at having their time wasted, the two reporters left without so much as a knock to report. The second they left the premises, however, the activity picked up once more. The reporters rushed back in to photograph the evidence, and one was immediately struck in the head by a Lego. Shortly after, the family relocated to Peggy's brother's house, where they were contacted by the senior reporter for The Mirror, whom, after hearing Peggy recount their story and being a bit interested in the paranormal himself, believed that the family was suffering at the hands of a poltergeist. The family returned to the house of the reporter, where the activity almost immediately resumed. The reporter told the family he knew some people who could help, people whom had dealt with this kind of haunting before. And no, it wasn't Ed and Lorraine. It was the Society for Psychical Research, or SPR, which was a respected organization that had been founded at Cambridge in 1882. Marie Curie, the discoverer of radium, had once been a member. Not even an hour later, Maurice Gross, a member of the group, arrived at the house to take stock of what was happening. Gross was newish to the paranormal scene, having become interested after the death of his daughter a year prior. 
After witnessing the family's crazy poltergeist situation, Gross consoled the family, telling them it was not that unusual to experience poltergeist activity and that he would help make it all end. Gross's presence within the house in reality would be widely credited to Ed and Lorraine when The Conjuring 2 hit the silver screen, reducing his character to more of like a sidekick. In fact, there's even a scene in the film where Lorraine, played by Vera Farmiga, briefly accuses Maurice Gross of taking advantage of the situation. Oh, the irony. For the next three days, Gross acted as a stabilizing force in the house, and nothing really terribly spooky happened during that time. John returned to boarding school, leaving Janet alone in her bedroom. On Thursday, September 8th at 1.15 a.m., Gross and several men from the Daily Mirror, whom had been keeping vigil at the Hodgson house, heard a calamity come from Janet's room. They burst in, finding the young girl petrified and a chair flipped 180 degrees and four feet from where it had been previously. They righted the chair and the event happened once again, this time with Janet fast asleep. After that, Gross's presence in the home seemed to lose the effect it had once had. Clothes and toys began flying and doors were slamming. Gross, Peggy, and Maggie Nottingham appeared on a two and a half hour radio spot on Nightline recounting what was going on in the house. Not long after, Gross was contacted by someone who wanted to help. And no, it wasn't Ed or Lorraine Warren. It was Guy Leon Playfair, another member of the SPR. The duo would spend a year investigating the Hodgson home, which culminated in Playfair's 1980 novel, This House is Haunted. As the activity continued to increase, things would seem to appear out of thin air or transport through walls and ceilings, including coins that one day rained down on Gross's head, and also the heavy appliances would move and flip themselves upside down. Recording devices would malfunction regularly, with sound being distorted and batteries draining faster than they should. Apparitions began appearing as well, which were not only witnessed by those in the house, but outside of it as well. This included a gray-haired old woman, an old man in a blue coat, a man with long fingernails, and a boy. By this point in time, the family couldn't even leave the house to be free of the activity. It followed them wherever they went. And at school, the kids were being mercilessly teased. So it's not like there was anywhere really, you know, no feeling of a safe haven. Each night, Janet and Margaret would be thrown from their beds. The girls were witnessed by several people levitating off of their beds as well. One of these instances was photographed and widely circulated, but caused a lot of scrutiny as it looked like Janet was jumping in the air, not levitating. I agree with this assessment, but you know. Through this, Gross and Playfair attempted to come up with ways to be able to speak to the entity, including knocks on the walls, as they knew it loved to do that, but little came from it. While in the film, only Janet is possessed, in reality, both Janet and Margaret would begin speaking in a deep, guttural voice. Like in the film, initially they could only do this when no one was watching, but eventually the activity advanced to the point where people observed them speaking with the deep male voice, which claimed to be multiple people, including Vic Nottingham's dead father, some dude named Fred, or a little boy named Tommy. When Gross asked Margaret to describe where the voice was coming from, she described it as if it was coming from behind her. In the film, Janet would describe this feeling to Lorraine Warren. 
A ventriloquist would come to the house to attempt to debunk the activity and claim that what the girls were doing was merely a basic form of his profession. Hearing this, two other members of the SPR installed a secret camera on which they caught Janet bending spoons herself and practicing her levitation act, which was essentially just a strategic bed bounce. Playfair's book conveniently leaves this evidence out. But in January 1978, Playfair busted Margaret and Janet. He'd left a tape recorder going upstairs and he would find it in a cupboard, though he'd not left it there. When he played back the tape, he could clearly hear Janet moving the tape herself. He confronted her and it immediately became clear that she'd done it, you know, on purpose. A few days after that, Margaret was caught slamming the bedroom door shut while pretending to be asleep. When Playfair managed to gain access to the room, Margaret was still pretending to be sound asleep. Playfair would eventually manage to make these events work into his narrative of the house being haunted. While there were other standout events, including the furniture moving and Janet claiming to have teleported as far as the Nottingham's bedroom across the way, the fact of the matter was, was that the people who witnessed the activity had all been firm believers of what was happening. The skeptics would easily explain things away as the two young girls acting out after their parents' divorce. Most of the skeptics never saw anything. So it's been a while now, and we haven't heard a peep from the Warrens. So where were they in all of this? Because the film makes it, you know, look like they were in the thick of it the whole time. Well, they were just one of many psychics and paranormal investigators from all over the world that visited Enfield, and the Warrens were allegedly uninvited. In fact, by the time they'd arrived to the house in the summer of 1978, most of the major activity had subsided. Ed claimed, however, to have spoken to the entity through Janet. This time, it was calling itself Freddy, a 500-year-old entity, and then it would become Tommy, a young boy who wanted to, quote, kill the ghosties. This Tommy would claim that five other entities were present within the house. Ed told the entities that the next time he'd see him, he was going to bring a, quote, powerful exorcist to deal with Fred and his friends. The Warrens never returned to Enfield. Instead, they went back to Connecticut and tapped a writer to pen a book claiming that the girls had summoned demonic spirits to the house after playing with a Ouija board in 1976, which Janet would claim did happen in reality. Ed would claim he and Lorraine spent a week there. Playfield claims it was just one single day. Playfield also stated that Ed told him that the Enfield haunting could make him a lot of money if he teamed up with the Warrens to elevate the situation to demonic. Playfield also asserts that Ed never had a conversation like the one he described with either Hodgson girl. If you've seen The Conjuring 2 a million times like I have, you're probably all too aware of missing elements from this story. For example, the ghost of Bill Wilkins, the entity that haunts the house and allegedly possesses Janet. In reality, Bill was a real person and he did die in the house of a brain hemorrhage, but he was never called out as one of the alleged entities responsible for the haunting. The scene with all the crucifixes turning upside down in Janet's bedroom also didn't happen at Enfield's. 
Also, sidebar, while that's considered a sign of the demonic because of the movies, an upside down cross is considered a St. Peter's crucifix in Catholicism because when the apostle Peter was crucified, he asked to be done so upside down as he believed not to be worthy enough to be crucified in the same manner Jesus had been. It's not demonic. It's just, it's Saint, it's how St. Peter got crucified. The notion of an upside down cross being a sign of the demonic began being popularized in 1960s counterculture and films like Rosemary's Baby and then everybody else just copied it because it was like, ooh, it's upside down, it's bad. In reality, not a thing. Another cinematic invention was Valak, the the nun demon that in the film is actually responsible for the Enfield haunting. That name, in reality, never comes up. There was never any mention of a crooked man either. No Ed Warren singing Elvis standards to the kiddos or giving them pep talks about bullying. And the entire third act of The Conjuring 2 is complete Hollywood fooey. All news reports of paranormal activity at the Enfield house ceased in 1979, though according to the family, it never totally ended. The real Janet Hodgson would state that she believed the activity began to wane after a priest visited the house in 1978, though the occurrences never ended completely. Peggy still heard voices in the house from time to time, and Billy, who lived with his mother until she passed in 2003, stated that it always felt like you were being watched by an unseen friend. Force. After Peggy died, Claire Bennett and her four sons would move into the house. Like Billy, Claire claimed that she always felt as if someone was watching her. She then learned about the Enfield poltergeist that supposedly haunted her home. After her 15-year-old son woke up and saw a man enter his room, the family fled, having only been there for two months. The third and final major case depicted in The Conjuring films is The Devil Made Me Do It case of Arnie Cheyenne Jackson. It began with the possession of David Glatzel, an 11-year-old boy, though he was depicted in the film as being eight, who was the younger brother of 26-year-old Debbie Glatzel, who was the girlfriend of 19-year-old Arnie Jackson. This paranormal activity began after Debbie, Arnie, and David went to clean up a rental property the couple had planned to move into in July 1980. According to David, a, quote, burnt and black-looking old man appeared and pushed him onto a waterbed, warning him him that no one had better move into the house. Debbie and Arnie thought David was using this quote-unquote old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning. This incident is dramatized in the film, though David is grabbed by a hand that bursts out of the waterbed and then attacks him. David's visions of the old man continued beyond that day and shifted into night terrors, with the man appearing as a demon with large sunken black eyes, horns, hoofs, pointy ears, and jagged teeth who mumbled in Latin and told the boy he was going to steal his soul. The demon in the film looks nothing like this, by the way. While the family would report hearing strange noises, only David ever saw this old man. Debbie would state that she saw the face of the demon once during one of her brother's episodes, but that was it. Terrified of what was happening to the boy, the Glatzel family called a Catholic priest who attempted to bless the house. It didn't work, and Debbie and Arnie opted to not rent the house. In the film, this is depicted to happen at what is the family home, not a rental property that the young couple had acquired. Despite the blessing, David's visions worsened. Twelve days after the activity began, Ed and Lorraine were summoned. 
During their initial investigation, Lorraine claimed to see a black mist materialize next to David. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens they had seen David being beaten and choked by an unseen presence. Ed also claimed that one of David's toy dinosaurs started to walk on its own before a voice came out of it telling the family, quote, Beware, you're all going to die. The Warrens claimed it was demons, 43 of them to be exact, not a ghost as the family had previously believed. David had also started to growl, hiss, speak in ominous voices, and recite passages from the Bible and Paradise Lost. The Warrens also diagnosed the boy with demons, and David was subjected to three, quote, lesser exorcisms. Lorraine claimed that David levitated, stopped breathing, and even predicted what Arnie would do several months later. The local diocese would state later that the Catholic Church had never sanctioned a formal exorcism on David because the Glatzel family had not had David take the psychological tests that the church required before doing so. Judy, David's mother, refutes this, claiming that she paid $75 an hour for a session with a local psychiatrist, but it was the church's responsibility to set up and pay for the further psychological testing. During one of these lesser exorcisms, Arnie Johnson tried to get one of the demons to possess him instead of the boy. According to the show A Haunting, a few days after Arnie had taunted the demon, he was seemingly attacked by it, as the demon allegedly took control of his car and slammed it into a tree. Arnie was unharmed. After this incident, Arnie returned to the rental property to examine an old well that the demon apparently lived in. Arnie would later claim that this was his final encounter with the demon while completely Completely lucid. At the well, Arnie claimed to make eye contact with the demon, becoming fully possessed as a result. The Warrens would claim to have warned him not to do this. As David's condition worsened further, Debbie and Arnie, who had been living with her parents, decided to move. Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, renamed Bruno Sauls in the film, as a dog groomer and rented a place closer to her new job, which was also owned by Bono. After moving in, Arnie reportedly started to exhibit behavior similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had also become possessed. On February 16, 1981, Arnie called out sick from his job at the tree service company and instead went to work with Debbie. They were joined by Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary and Arnie's sisters Wanda, 15, and Janice, 13. They'd wanted to play with the doggos. Bono took the group out to lunch at a local bar where he and Arnie proceeded to hella drink. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel where Arnie had promised to fix Bono's stereo. Bono, whom was shit-canned, for one reason or another grabbed Mary and refused to let go of her. Arnie got involved. Bono eventually let Mary go, and she ran for the car as Debbie attempted to cool off the increasingly hostile encounter between Bono and Arnie that had by this time moved to the driveway, not in Bono's apartment as seen in the film. Sidebar, there had also been rumors that Debbie and Bono had been carrying on an affair, which was completely left out of the film. The real Debbie denied this ever happening, claiming that Bono was merely a super-friendly alcoholic. For whatever reason, Arnie pulled out his five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. The man would die several hours later. Arnie was ultimately apprehended two miles from the murder, the perpetrator of the first homicide in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. He claimed to have no memory of the incident. 
Debbie would claim that Arnie appeared to be in a trance when the attack had occurred. The very next day, Lorraine Warren called to inform the Brookfield police that Arnie was possessed by a demon at the time of the murder. A media furor ensued because of this, and shortly after, the promise of lectures, novels, and even a film were in the works to document the case. Arnie's lawyer, Martin Manella, renamed Merrill and made a woman in the film, would state, quote, The courts have dealt with the existence of God. Now they're going to have to deal with the existence of the devil. Manella would receive calls from all over the world about the newly minted, quote, demon murder trial. He even traveled abroad to investigate two similar cases in the UK. Manella also planned to bring in exorcism specialists from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priests who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms if they did not cooperate with the defense. The trial took place in Connecticut Superior Court beginning on October 28, 1981. Arnie's lawyer attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the judge would not allow it. All quote-unquote expert testimonies asserting Arnie was possessed were not allowed in court. The defense then chose the angle that Arnie had acted in self-defense. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a vile explanation for the killing, but you know, they still heard about it. Ultimately, the jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Arnie of first-degree murder on November 24th, 1981. On December 18th, 1981, he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, though he would only serve five. In 1983, Jared Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut, with profits of the novel being shared with the family. The book would be republished in 2006, upon which time David Glatzel and his brother Carl Jr., who doesn't appear in the Third Conjuring film, sued the authors and book publishers for violating their right to privacy, libel, and, quote, intentional infliction of emotional distress. Carl claimed that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine to exploit the Glatzels, specifically his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented Carl Jr. as the villain because he did not believe that the supernatural stuff was happening. The book even alleged that Carl had committed abusive and criminal acts. Carl further asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and get Arnie out of jail. All they had to do was go along with it should be mentioned that the family was only ever paid about $2,000, so nowhere near, you know, the millions. Carl further claimed that the publicity generated by the incident had forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and other business opportunities. In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother. Lorraine would defend her position Ed had died in 2006, claiming that the six priests who were involved in the incident had all agreed that the boy was possessed and that everything in that book was true. Riddle, the actual author of The Devil in Connecticut, stated that, quote, the family wanted the story to be told and that he had over 100 hours of taped interviews with the family. Dude also had receipts. He had releases from every member of the family giving permission for the story to be told and that everything they'd said was the truth. Carl's father, Carl Sr., would deny telling the author that his son was possessed. The only people whom seem to fully support the Warren narrative are Arnie and Debbie, who married while Arnie was serving his time. They accused David and Carl Jr. of money-grubbing. 
But let's be honest, Arnie and Debbie have a pretty big incentive to claim that Ed and Lorraine's version of demonic possession to be the accurate one. Now, while the story at the heart of The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It was actually the case the Warrens were most involved in of all three of these, it goes completely off the rails in the third act. There were no devil worshippers involved in the case. The disciples of the Ram cult depicted in the film as a fabricated one, first appearing in the 2014 film Annabelle. But yeah, no totems. None of the stuff at the end is accurate to any version of the actual events that happened. Just the possession of David and Arnie doing the murder. All of the other quote-unquote cases depicted in The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It are also not real. Ironically, the case the Warrens had the largest hand in of these three yielded the most fabricated film. While the exploits of Ed and Lorraine Warren have created one hell of a horror franchise, unfortunately the real people are far from the heroic demon-slash-ghost hunters shown on the screen. Despite this, the Conjuring franchise has absolutely no signs of slowing down, with, like I said, a fourth film announced just days before I recorded this episode, and a Crooked Man spinoff coming as well. It seems that Hollywood still has a pound of flesh to extract from the Warrens' murky legacy. One thing's for sure, the Warrens knew how to tell an excellent ghost story. Here I come. Am I talking to the spirit that's oppressing this family? Is that what I am? Is that what I'm doing? Yes. I've come to put a stop to it. Do you know who I am? Ed. Eddie. Edward. Ed is fine. Your father calls you Edward. Not true. My father called me Ed just like everybody else. <laughs> Come on, Bill, you're not a psychiatrist, and I'm not here to talk about my father. Let's get down to business. What do you say? Hmm? What would be so wrong with going to heaven? news for you, Bill. See, I don't care what you believe in. You see this? Help! It's like God! Help! It's like And that's gonna do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got the buy me a coffee where you buy me a coffee. No coffee tonight. It is 20 to 1 in the morning because I have Halloween parties tomorrow night and this was a big episode, so I don't need to be up until 2 in the morning because I drank too much coffee. Anyway, I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. 
Next month, we're going back to basics in a way, back to the version of the first curated theme I ever did, because next month we're going through the history of the Little Three Film Studios. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.